Today on the Topping Show, Megan Rapinoe misses the World Cup goal and laughs. Bud Light's founder's grandson slams Anheuser-Busch and Bev's choice to partner with Dylan Mulvaney. Trump critiques the U.S. women's soccer team. Elon Musk to pay the legal fees for people who are fired for using Twitter X. Joe Rogan drinks a Bud Light and is critiqued by conservatives. Harry's Razors commercial has a topless biological woman transitioning, shaving her face. NASCAR indefinitely suspends a driver for liking a meme. Barbie movie passes $1 billion in sales. Joe Rogan claims Carrie Lake's election appeared to have some fraud and the media melts down. Democrats put forward legislation to tax AR-15 magazines and rifles at 1,000%. Mercedes to bring back the V8 engine. Dallas-Fort Worth is one of the fastest growing areas in the United States. Berkshire Hathaway reaches a $36 billion profit. Tesla CFO steps down and Yellow Trucking has confirmed its bankruptcy. All of that and much, much more on The Topic Show. Thank you everyone for taking the time to tune in today. Today's episode of the Topic Show is sponsored by Topping Technologies. Topping Technologies is an IT value-added reseller and services company with a special proficiency in IT security. Heck, I see their founder at least twice a day. Gotta say he's quite handsome and brilliant. He's me, that's the joke. If you're an IT leader or a business owner and need a little assistance, you can reach the team at sales at toppingtechnologies.com. Also trying to get to 3,000 subscribers by the end of August, so you can click that button and greatly appreciate it. Now, going over to the business part of the podcast, you have finally some great automotive news. You have Mercedes bringing back the V8 AMG. Now, recently, their most powerful AMG C-Class, the C63, they decided to trade the iconic hand-built V8 internal combustion engine for a hybridized inline turbo four engine. And yeah, to say that's anemic is to say the least. Now, there's nothing wrong with the four cylinder engine. My Honda Civic Si has a four cylinder engine. I love it, partially because it comes with a three pedals in terms of a manual transmission, but people buy a Mercedes, the pinnacle of German, well, I'd say Porsche, but nevertheless, a highly respectable German automotive brand. And AMG, you wind back the clock, hand built, you know, German engineering, there's something special about a premium luxury brand coming with what is slowly becoming, unfortunately, a more rare and rare occurrence of the internal combustion engine and the V8. Four cylinders is great, but eight is great. It rhymes, therefore it must be true. But in all seriousness, it looks like they also had their E-Class and an upcoming E63 had an inline six engine with a plug-in hybrid setup. Now, again, it's one of those things where there's nothing inherently, well, depending on who you ask, I don't know who you ask, there's nothing inherently wrong with hybrids or smaller engines. A wise man much smarter than me once said, there's a time and place for everything. And I think if from the ground up, if Mercedes were to come out with a new product line, again, they're, they name everything after numbers like BMW to make it complex. So you'll have to be an enthusiast to know the actual model numbers. But if they were to build one from the ground up, that's originally a hybrid, which I think BMW is doing with a couple of their, their electric vehicles, there probably wouldn't be as much visceral backlash from the good old enthusiasts. Now, the good news is they're bringing back the V8 to the specifically the models, the C63 and the E63, both backed by 2026. Now, it looks like there'll be a reinstitution of the M177 4-liter V8, which is actually according to two independent sources. And of course, unfortunately, due to global emissions and all that kind of stuff, they're actually in process of trying to have it modified so it'll meet the EU7 emission standards. Granted, one country produces more pollutants than all the other countries combined, but mm, let's not focus on China. Let's focus on everyone else but them. But it is nice to see, finally, a brand listening to the consumers as 
people precipitously lost interest in those models and their sales hurt, of course. You saw this with the Mercedes, very few people know the actual term for it, but, but it's pejoratively known, or just regularly known as the G-Wagon, which had a huge, I think it was 150% increase in sales for the V8 version, because they told people it was gonna go down by the, an inline six or a four cylinder, which it's a big boxy SUV. It's an iconic part of the brand. It's been around for decades, originally made to be a military vehicle. Obviously people want the V8. So people are paying a premium. Mercedes said they were gonna go away with it. Interest dropped dramatically. And thankfully they're gonna be bringing a lot of the big toys back. So it'll be interesting to see how many of these, how many other costs, how many other companies in the automotive community are gonna to listen to the consumers. You have General Motors, which again wants to be a fully electric by 2035. That's according to the CEO, Maribara. They're turning the Camaro, an iconic American muscle car, into a four-door EV sedan. No one is, no one is going to buy that. Oh, I take it back. The 18 people who work at General Motors will because they have the friends and family discount. But if you own a four-door EV sedan, most people realistically they're going with the Tesla. If they want a performance car, one that's more tuned for performance, they'd probably get the Porsche Taycan, which has four doors, EV, and that was actually engineered. So you can push that vehicle to the limit until the battery dies. It doesn't actually neuter the vehicle by pulling back on the power, regardless of the percentage left in the battery, because Porsche wanted it to be made for people who actually want to drive. Now, granted, it's still not as good as having three pedals, but still an interesting use case, and hopefully more automotive companies will do what's right for the consumer, aka list of the free market. But as I always say, time shall tell. Other interesting business news, you have Dallas-Fort Worth becoming one of the fastest growing metropolitan areas in the United States. Now, it looks like it may even become, they're right now with a creative trajectory of everyone moving here, it might even become more populous than Chicago, which isn't saying much as Chicago is losing companies left and right. One of the most iconic companies in the United States is Boeing. The legacy aerospace company dominated in the military segment, went on the commercial segment, is now one of the most reputable brands in history, even they left Chicago. Their, their global headquarters is no longer in Chicago. Companies are leaving that area in droves. And where are they going? Texas, Florida. You, you think these other states might learn, but no, it would be the antithesis of everything they stand for. Now, in terms of Texas growing exponentially, it looks like in DFW alone, Fort Worth actually alone, that one city, which in my opinion, all of Texas should really be like the stockyards in Fort Worth, which is where everyone wears cowboy hats and it's really the heart of Texas, many would say. Now that city alone has gained 19,000 residents between July 2021 and July 2022. More than any other US city. That's astronomically impressive for a growth rate. In terms of businesses, 265 businesses have either relocated or expanding to Texas since 2020. That type of growth rate is astronomically impressive. In the past six months alone, just off the top of my head, one of the most iconic manufacturers in history, Caterpillar, relocated, I believe from Illinois, over to Irving, Texas. Businesses are coming here in droves. Now, hopefully the people who come here remember why they're coming here and they don't try to change the tax codes or anything like that accordingly. But it's interesting to see more and more businesses are choosing Texas than any other place. Perhaps other places will learn, catch on, perhaps. Time, as I always say, shall tell, but great news for the state, or some might say the country, of Texas. Now, other interesting business news, you have Berkshire Hathaway reaching $36 billion in profit. The Oracle of Omaha is spot on as usual. Although the only person better than him is Nancy Pelosi's husband who actually trades better than Warren Buffett. Who knows why that could possibly occur? But I digress. 
in terms of Berkshire Hathaway. Last Saturday, their day, they posted their highest ever quarterly offering, operating profit at $10.04 billion, which even with a down economy, 40-year hyperinflation, it's still 7% higher than the prior year before. So it looks like their net income for the fiscal year till now hit $36 billion. Now, in terms of the breakdown of how they're so successful right now, fiscally speaking, it looks like one of their premier golden child, so to say, the, di the diamond of the rough that keeps making them more and more money is the insurance industry, which makes sense. On average, it's a pretty profitable venture. That's why there's a lot, a lot of startups, there's a lot of companies expanding in that area. And it looks like Geico is actually one of their best performing companies. And it looks like they need it because it's actually offsetting the losses from other companies, such as BNSF, which is one of the largest railroad operating companies headquartered in Fort Worth, Texas. Now, that company actually saw a 24% profit drop thanks to consumer shipments decreasing as well as competition from the trucking industry. Now, it looks like Berkshire Hathaway also finished the quarter with $147.4 billion in cash and cash equivalents, which is a near record, which is an astronomical amount of fiscal success. Can't help but wonder what they're going to continue investing. You know, Apple, precipitously, they're getting their sales quarter to quarter decreasing. You're actually getting kneecapped pretty bad with the iPhone sales decreasing. So their stock also precipitously declined. Warren is one of those brilliant investors. He likes to invest in much more, many tangible items. They bought out Acne Brick, also headquartered in Fort Worth a couple years back. And so it'll be interesting to see where does he choose to invest. And again, I'm no financial analyst. I just can't help but notice he's very good at making quite mostly really good choices. So it'll be interesting to see where he chooses to invest. I would venture to say probably businesses in Texas would be a pretty safe bet, I would guess. Now, other interesting business news, you have the Tesla's CFO stepping down. So it looks like CFO Zach Kirkland will be stepping down before the Cybertruck official launch. And a lot of people are speculating he might have been the long-term CEO. And there's a lot of speculation of was he being groomed or is he being bolstered for that position? But it looks like he's actually being gone. So it looks like he's been the CFO for about four years and with Tesla as a total for about 13 years. And they even gave him a cool nickname, the Master of Coin, which... I mean, that these days people don't use coins in terms of monetary value, but still it gets the message across since throughout history, coins used to be made with precious or real metals as opposed to zinc like the United States uses for the penny, which is 99.99% zinc and just barely copper plated. So if you scratch it with a little, even a fingernail base, I joke, it probably have to be a pen. You can see it's mostly zinc, which is mostly garbage, but perhaps a metaphor for another time. It looks like Chief Accounting Officer Vyajay Tenja will be succeeding Kirkhorn who Tesla said will stay on through the end of the year for a, quote, seamless transition, unquote. Now, they've loved the previous CFO, Zach, because he helped the company pay down debt. And of course, CFOs are kind of like wizards to some people in terms of, they always pay to have a good accountant and a CFO is key for a company's long-term success since the tax code in the United States is so complex. You almost need a supercomputer to really analyze it and see how are you properly paying your taxes or are you overpaying, which is even worse because if you overpay, you don't get that money back with interest. If you underpay, they charge you with interest. So it's one of those things where being right on the money is key because all that money that you're giving them for free or you're overpaying, that could be invested into a new factory, employee salaries. So it's one of those very, very careful balancing acts and having a good CFO is key. So it'll be interesting to see how Tesla goes from here. Now, going on to the culture part of the podcast, you have Megan Rapinoe missing a World Cup goal and laughing. Now, I don't know 
I don't know if I can take credit for this nickname. It's not that great, but when I when I thought of this nickname from Megan Rapinoe, I, I had a voice in my head, and you know the voice, but when it comes to Megan Rapinoe, I have to say she is mediocre Megan. She can't even hit the side of a goal. She missed by miles. Anyone could hit that goal, even a child. That's why the high school boys beat her in a game, but I digress. And I apologize if that is perhaps the worst Trump impression you've ever heard to this date. The uh, bar's pretty low in terms of the impressions. Everyone does it. But... She missed a goal from mere feet away. And not only did she miss a regular goal, which, again, when you have adults playing soccer or men's soccer, you have a lot of conflict in terms of people bounce off each other. That you can get People get physical and get knocked down. You might even get a scratch on your knee. But in this case, it was a penalty kick, which is the easiest kick of all. It's literally where there's no chance of interference. You don't, you don't have to worry about someone clobbering you or bashing you to the ground. You're literally, the whole steam's in awe. All 18 gals in the audience watching the U.S. Women's Soccer, they're all looking at Megan Rapino, Mediocre Megan, and they watched, and Megan with, again, no pressure in terms of no one's going to hit her, no one's going to knock her over, it's her versus the goalie. And the goal is pretty damn close. And the goal is pretty darn big. And she misses completely. And she, of course, missed. Now, this actually helped contribute to the downfall of the U.S. Women's Soccer team. And it looks like Last Sunday, they were defeated because of those penalty kicks in Parsh, and they lost to Sweden. And this is the earliest exit ever for U.S. women's soccer team. Now, granted, very few people noticed because statistically speaking, very few people, people actually tune in. FIFA actually had to give away 20,000 tickets for one of the U.S. women's soccer events in New Zealand because no one was buying them, which goes to show you why Meta paid more. It's nothing to do with sexism or being pejorative against one versus the other. It's quite simply, supply and demand. Much more people tune in for the men's sport. And May would say, well, the U.S. globally is about 50% men and 50% women. If every woman turned into the sport, they'd be paid them out because they'd be safe. I digress. But it's fascinating to see, perhaps she should have spent more time practicing and less time being a political activist. And she, perhaps in her mediocrity, the whole world laughed at her, but even she laughed at herself, perhaps. She was seen laughing while she's walking away. And... I, it's fascinating to see FIFA, they're being very litigious or very protective of this film. Well, I guess nowadays it's not film, it's all digital. Unless you're, unless you're a good old um, Christopher Nolan making the Oppenheimer movie. Physical film is very much a dying area. But I digress. FIFA is actually striking channels that use the actual footage of Megan missing epically. Perhaps because they're so embarrassed, but they should be proud. This is the first time in decades people have tuned in to see a highlight clip from the U.S. Women's Soccer Open. And I'm only 80, but, well, I'm only 7% kidding. Well, well, that, yeah. It's astronomical. Now, when I asked for further comment, because people actually, for some reason, wanted to hear what she wanted to say, which is oddly enough, something I didn't think was possible, but a couple of them went up to her because she's supposed to be retiring. She's 38 years old, which again, in sports is pretty darn old. And I can't help but wonder, is she the best performer or is she just the or is she the best soccer performer or is she just the best political performer how does she get that spot on the team but another topic for another time perhaps when a reporter went up and they asked her you know what's your 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 greatest memory from this game you've had this long career you've you actually you've won a couple games you've had some highlights what's your favorite memory was it beating a really hard team was it you know coming together you know working with the gals on the field and you know really hard practices or some type of camaraderie that you built no, her, her favorite memory was, quote-unquote, equal pay, which, again, is for unequal performance because performance-wise, they don't perform as well as any other, all the other sports. 
Less people tuning in means less sponsors care because sponsors pay per person tuning in. Whether it's an app on your phone or something on the TV, when they negotiate these contracts with all the big companies from PepsiCo to Coca-Cola to mom and pop shops who want to put their logo out there, the main topic they ask is how many people tune in because the more people who tune into the sport, the more valuable that time is. That's why the Super Bowl ads are worth millions of dollars because so many Americans have their eyeballs glued to the TV. It's, fis it's purely fiscally a numbers game. How many people are tuning in? How much do they spend on merchandising? All that kind of stuff. And she said her favorite memory was equal pay. And she went on to say that advocating for social issues are a couple of her of her other favorite things from being on a soccer team. Which, again, when I think of her quote-unquote social contribution, well, contributions is a positive good thing, she mainly, you, what was it, sat down on the national, or I guess she didn't sit, she did kneel, so I guess it takes a modicum of effort. Hmm, mediocre Megan or modicum of effort, Megan? You decide in the in the comment section which which nickname is more apt or more accurate. But she wanted to say that some of her favorite memories were advocating social issues that had nothing to do with soccer. Well, she didn't say it had nothing to do with soccer. I had to say it had nothing to do with soccer. It wasn't representing your country, which again, she doesn't like the United States. Look at her social media or any of her protesting. Which again, I would say there's a time and there's a time and place for a piece of protesting. I would certainly say when you're representing the United States in front of the globe, well, if she thinks the United States is so bad, why is she getting paid a gross amount of money to where to represent the U.S.? It, the hypocrisy is quite unpalatable, to say the least. But just goes to show you, perhaps it's best to not mix politics and sports, since I've yet to see it actually increase the value of a sporting team or increase the number of people tuning in to watch the sporting team. Perhaps she thinks this is her long-term career track, which Colin Kaepernick, fiscally speaking, he was successful in regards to he was a mediocre quarterback. I think he won a game or two, but he made a lot more money just protesting. So maybe she thinks this is her next thing as a lot of celebrities become advocates. But to say your greatest memory isn't working with the team, scoring a goal. Well, I guess she definitely didn't have that, that last memory. Her last, uh, last attempt at a goal was an epic fail, but such a bizarre thing to not have one of your favorite memories be about the people, the team, leading the team, cultivating. The mind merely boggles. But I digress. I, if I were a gambling man, I would say we will see, we will hear her, whether we like it or not, very soon because more often than that, I think she will traverse into a new career track of yelling more and kneeling more. How admirable to hate the United States, but wear the United States uniform and profit off of it. Astonishing. But I digress for now. Other interesting cultural news, you have Trump critiquing the U.S. women's soccer team loss, which in terms of political campaigning, not, uh, probably not pertinent to his campaign. However, in terms of the people that like Trump already, probably a good way to make them laugh and they do like his tweets. Well, in this case, his truths, which is his own social media network. Now, specifically, he said that the team's flameout was, quote, fully emblematic of what is happening to our great nation. He went on to say, or unquote, he went on to say, quote, many of our players are openly hostile to America. No other country behaved in such a manner or even close. Woke equals failure. Nice shot, Megan. The U.S. is going to be, is going to hell, MAGA, unquote. So it was, there are a lot of people who have greatly appreciated that, I don't know if that's a pun, that's perhaps just an accurate observation to many folks, I would say. 
But it certainly perhaps is a good way for him to recultivate his brand of people who like him dunking on the woke mob, so to say. I don't know how much it's going to help from a independent voters, which again, if you want to win politics, you need those independent voters. You need to get some people from the other side. But in terms of a cultural phenomenon, it is almost like the firework that won't stop exploding. He is consistently getting more and more social media traction to the detriment to, I'm sure, perhaps his lawyer or perhaps his social... There's no way he has a social media manager. I take that back. That, that job does not exist. But it is moderately comical to see everyone... The people who love him increasingly seem to like him. And the people who hate him, oh, they you you know about him because they are quite vocal as well. But it'll be interesting to see, do, does this message resonate with more Americans now? Or is he alienating more folks? As I always say, time shall tell. Now, other interesting culture news, you have Bud Light's founders grants on slamming Anheuser-Busch InBev and their, their interesting business blunder of partnering with Dylan Mulvaney. Now, this was a recent TMZ interview with the great grand, the grandson of the founder, who is Billy Bush. And his late, he was saying that his late father, August Gussie Bush Jr., and his dad, who create, or his father's dad, who created Anheuser-Busch InBev, and Al, uh, Adolphus Bush, they would be, quote, would have rolled over in their graves, unquote, if they were alive to see the financial and social replications wrought with the failed partnership. Now, in terms of winding back the clock and the company history and the family history, the St. Louis-based Bush family sold their stake in the firm in 2008 after having it in the family for more than 150 years. And it looks like they sold their current stake in InBev for $52 billion. Now, ever since Anheuser Bush all became one, they actually saw their valuation swell up to $140 billion. Now, granted, much of that was erased, or many, not much, a fair amount of that was erased once April 1st came along. And they lost, I believe, it was $28 billion in stock value ever since they partnered with Dylan Mulvaney April 1st, which I don't know if it's hindsight's 20. There is something oddly hilarious about it being April 1st, and it was not intended to be a joke, but they pissed off people on the left, on the right, and even in the middle. And they have not recovered since. In fact, they went from being the number one beer in the United States for 20 years to now 14. Modelo beat them in the United States for two months in a row, and I suspect it'll be three months in a row as well. And Modelo, again, in the United States, it's a separate company. It's owned by Constellation Brands, which I believe is headquartered in New York. Now, globally, yes, Anheuser-Busch InBev does own Modelo. So if you're buying Modelo in Spain or Portugal or overseas, you are supporting Anheuser-Busch InBev. In the United States, if you believe in the boycott, you can... You would be safe in your boycott efforts if you were to purchase Modelo. It was actually one of the conditions that the United States Security Exchange Commissions, or the SEC, set in place for the merger of Anheuser-Busch with InBev to begin with. So now it's actually a global conglomerate with InBev being headquartered out of Belgium. They don't just make waffles and awesome rifles, apparently. Now, in terms of the family history, it is a little... I think it's worth going into because it's one of those things where some people are blaming the family. They thinking they had more control of the company, you know, why do they sell out? Well, as in many of the instances, it sometimes isn't their saying because they didn't have a majority stake in the company anymore. So in terms of the diving more into the interview, and Bush actually was speaking with um, TMZ, TMZ's head, Harvey Levin, and talking about, you know, how they lost 390 million in sales. Now, they got to talked about the controversial part of the company with partnering with Dylan Mulvaney. And in that, Bush said, 
quote, when you're talking about his family's heritage and what their beliefs are in terms of religious, political, social, um, in this case, uh, gender, uh, sex, gender, phenomenons. And he said, they believe that transgenderism, um, gays, that sort of thing is all a very personal issue, unquote. Speaking for pioneering figures like his dad, August, who served as a chairman from 1946 to 1975, and Adolphus, the Missouri magnate who cooked up the first batch of Budweiser in 1876. Now, it looks like both, his, of course, his dad and grandfather, unfortunately, had passed and both his natural causes. And unfortunately, it looks like his grandfather actually ended up ending his life in 1934 after prohibition brought his creation to the brink of bankruptcy. Now, it looks like this. I, I love business history. Let me know in the comments if um, you don't want as much background when you talk about companies. We can go into, you know, here's a little highlight of where the company came from. Personally, I find it fascinating, but let me know in the comments if you want more or less of that content. Now, in terms of the history, his son, August Sr., managed to save the company during Prohibition by selling soda and ice cream, which is fascinating from a business perspective to actually pivot and stay open in what was one of the most inopportune kinds to be a business. That's pretty impressive in and of itself. And he actually ended up building up Anderson Bush companies into the largest breweries, into what, into the largest brewery in the world by 1957, which in terms of growth rate, that's astronomical. That is almost as good as the growth rate as our subscriptions. Do me a favor and click that subscribe button and help us out. Now, it looks like the family would pass the company through generations and Billy and his several siblings and cousins would become partial owners. During this span, however, the family sold an estimated 25% stake from their ownership over the course from 1989 to 2008, which ended in a historic sale after their stake depleted to less than 5% of shares at the time, which is quite unfortunate because, again, it's still a lot of money, but basically in terms of the breakdown of the shares of the company, once you don't have control of the company, you're at the behest of the, sh the shareholders. One of the reasons that the Ford company is still under the Ford family is because they might not have majority of the Class A stock, which is the public trade stock, but the untraded stock, they have a majority of that stock. So in terms of the voting stock, they have a majority uh, say of what the company still does to this day, even though the public can buy the stock. You and I could buy Ford if we were to want to have a share in the company. Now, it looks like the they because they were only at 5%, they were unable to block the transaction, which at the time between Angela Bush and InBev combining was $48 billion. Now, granted, that being said, the family, including Billy and his and the then CEO half nephew of August the fifth, continued to fight back, and they actually rejected InBev's initial proposal after later striking a deal for seventy for seventy dollars per share, giving them an extra four billion in the sale. Now, it looks like an astonishing growth rate for the family as well. It looks like the family has an estimated thirty heirs, with Billy and his final Bush boss August the fourth, fifty nine included, or age fifty nine. And of course, unfortunately, after the sale, they had to lay off uh, some employees. And of course, the culture changed as well. And in terms of, you know, continuing the conversation, asking, you know, did your family ever think of advertising campaigns? And, you know, what, what would they think about this? They had um, Billy say, quote, they love this country because it's a free country and people are allowed to do what they want. But it was never meant to be on a beer can and pushed in people's faces. So it sounds like they're very much more socially conservative, do what you want, but um, you don't advertise it per se. So it is unfortunate to see what was a family business for generations eventually got diluted with the stock. And now, of course, I believe they, I don't even believe he's on the board of directors there. They really don't have much to do with the company anymore. And what was an icon, you know, for decades is now, granted, they're still around. They've only, only you know, quote, unquote, 
lost $390 million in sales. Really interesting to see, you know, the, are there, how many of these up-and-coming beer companies can rival them in the future. There's only a couple left, and very few are family-owned. I know in terms of my anecdotal knowledge of the alcohol industry, Yaling is probably the most well-known beer company. Well, it's the oldest beer company in the United States, but also one of the few that's still family-owned that's on, I'll say, almost more of a mass scale. I'd be interested to see, can someday, could even they rival Anheuser-Busch and Bite? It'd be, the odds are pretty low, but some people, they like an underdog, and I would say, perhaps, maybe. Other interesting cultural news, you have Elon Musk saying he will pay legal fees for users whose employers treat them unfairly for using X, which used to be known as Twitter. Now, this is fascinating. So this, they're saying if an employee is treated quote unquote unfairly by their boss for liking a post or posting a comment on the platform, Elon will pay for their fee legal fees. Now, of course, he did have to get more granular because that's a big topic in and of itself. Now, specifically, he will pay for any legal fees for anyone who has lost their jobs due to X content, which, again, marketing is, it, the marketing is still determining, that, was that a good marketing move for him to change the name from Twitter to X? Because right now, that's when people say, you know, that you lost your job to X content, that's, you're not thinking, most people are not thinking of Elon Musk because their minds are probably in the gutter. I will, you know, I'll let you go with your own imaginations there. Also, everyone posting a video on Elon Musk's platform is now making an X video, which is another comical meme in and of itself. And it's interesting to see you had a NASCAR driver, which is another story today, actually lose his job because he liked something, but that was on Instagram. So unfortunately for him, he does not qualify for this specific instance. Now, Elon has long been very vocal about his belief of fighting the, and this is a quote from him, quote unquote, the woke mind virus, unquote. And he's very committed to free speech. Now, that being said, he's not a free speech absolutist. He never let Alex Jones get back on the platform of Twitter or now X. And in terms of the litmus test, I think that's a pretty good one. He says, Alex Jones says a lot of outlandish things, although it is quite concerning when some of them turn out to be true. But he's still American, he's still human, he still deserves the right for speech, free speech. So that's, when I meet someone, that's usually a good litmus test. Do they believe in free speech or do they just believe in their free speech or the speech that they believe in? Which again, in terms of politically correct or mass accepted free speech, there's no, you don't need a law for that because it's already mass accepted. Really, free speech is quite necessary, or laws for free speech, quite necessary around unpopular opinions because they're the ones that are already in danger of being socially ostracized, but those are the ones that also actually do need some protection, which every, every American used to believe in the philosophy that I may, I may not agree with what you are saying, but I'll fight to the death for your right to say it, which is quite concerning in and of itself that more and more Americans do not believe in that, which I'm one of those, one of those old school fans of debates and philosophical discussions where I always think, let's see who has the best idea. Let's have a debate. Let's have, let's have a discussion to see what, what your, what's your argument. And I also would argue it also makes you a more rounded up, more better rounded out, uh, round out opinion if you absorb material and learn a little bit about all the perspective. But I digress. It'll be interesting to see. I don't know what Elon's case is in this because he's talking about separate privately owned companies. And right now in the United States, and granted, the, the laws around employment uh, in the United States especially are quite fluid. There are some states that are actually banning the ability to fire someone based on, for example, their weight. Now, you have that, new, there's a lot of nuances, but in the United States, I believe with the exception of public jobs. So if you work for the government, the government cannot fire you for your political ideology or your free speech. But 
a private employer can. And in terms of an employer's ability to hire who they want in terms of a political ideology or philosophical beliefs, I don't know how Elon as a third party to that situation is going to have a legal grounds to stand on. It'll be interesting. I'm sure people appreciate uh, the symbol of him doing this, but I will be fascinated to see how the first case really hammers out with this situation. Now, other interesting culture news, you have Joe Rogan drinking a Bud Light with Zach Bryan on his show. Now, it looks like Joe Rogan actually cracked open a can of Bud Light and allegedly did not lose all his taste buds. That's, that's still yet to be seen. And that was last Tuesday after he offered a toast to his guest, the country music star Zach Bryan. And they agreed with uh, Joe Rogan's taste about the residual backlash against the brand. And Joe Rogan is saying, you know, it all amounts to uh, silliness, quote unquote. Which, one of those interesting things, I'm actually surprised for how popular he is. Granted, he has FU money, he doesn't need sponsors, but... For him not to have an official beer is almost perplexing because if he wanted to snap his fingers, he can get a lifetime supply of any beer he wants for free because so many people tune into his show. Now, it's fascinating to see that, you know, a lot, it's, it's almost as if conservatives and liberals and Republicans and Democrats, they are all fighting over Joe Rogan. They all want him to be on their team and really to believe in their ideology so they can use him as an advertising vessel or perhaps, and perhaps also to advertise to the youngins or the cool hip kids. Like, oh, look, Joe Rogan believes in our stuff, which... If you listen to Joe Rogan for anything more than 12 minutes, I would say, you would know he's mostly left on a lot of his social issues, in terms of his conservative beliefs, which again, I don't think the Second Amendment should be conservative, that should be an American belief, but he's more pro-gun in that regard, but he's quite adamant about his use in recreational drugs, conservatives usually aren't into that, so he's more left than anything else, but conservatives are so desperate for popular people to be on their side, every once in a while Joe Rogan will say something that is conservative, but everyone just wants him to be on their side. And in terms of Joe Rogan's history, if you watch the show, he's drank Bud Light for years. Like if you watch his special, or not, um, the special, not a Netflix special, but a show where he has on his buddies, like you have Shane Gillis, Ari Shafir, you got, oh, who's, I forgot who's the most racist comic in the United States. Burt Kreischer, that's an inside joke if you're in comedy community or a fan of comedy. And it's one of those things where they all have Bud Light before, I guess in terms of Jorgen's not really participating in what is the boycott that many are participating in, but he's not really changing his behavior one way one way or the other. So I I don't like I don't know why conservatives are so surprised necessarily. I mean Jorgen has said his opinions about you know his uh, thoughts about transitioning and the age, and he's interviewed some I believe it was a what is it, Eddie Lizard who's a transgender uh, man transitioned to woman who's a be a world record for the number of marathons run, but. So he's interviewed folks um, on all sides of the political aisle, but it's fascinating to see people are getting upset about this when it's it's not all too surprising. But of course, if he says anything these days, he's going to get a lot of clicks because controversy ensues because he you know, inevitably you're going to probably piss off one side or the other, no matter what you say. But it is a little bit surprising yeah, um, his choices on this, but he's he's gone back and forth. It'll be interesting to see where he goes from here. Nope. Other interesting culture news, you have Harry's Razors having a commercial in which they show a biological woman topless with mastectomy scars showing that she had the surgery to voluntarily remove the breast tissue. 
and this person is transitioning, so they're taking testosterone. So this uh, female has facial hair, and it's a commercial, and it's called part of Harry's Racers, saying that they're saying this is part of the partnership for to partner with the Trevor Project, which has a, if you look at that project in and of itself, has had instances where grown men are messaging younger boys around talking about sexual acts and apps. So there's controversy around that in and of itself. But this commercial, which again is on the internet, it's being seen by kids, this, I'll play it, it's only about 34 seconds long, but it's something I would never have thought been on TV, or I guess in this case, the Twitter sphere, because of the age, lack of an age, real age limit on Twitter, they don't ask for you an ID yet. But let's play it. So first it says, celebrating my first pride with facial hair. So the Harry's razor has, has a green handle and it looks like the biological woman is with a, 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 a biological woman with long hair um, standing next to him, her. So fully topless with the scars. And it says, growing up, I was always envious of boys going through puberty, getting facial hair, and learning how to shave. So now she's putting on the shaving cream. And it says, I love growing a beard and maintaining it. Having facial hair and grooming and eye grooming routine is the most gender affirming thing to me, which... I would say it's insensitive because some men can't grow beards. So that is that pejorative statement in and of itself? Will, the, will this person be canceled? I doubt it. But and this person is using like, it almost looks like a, a brush you use for a shoe on their face, which I guess I missed the memo. I didn't know that's required for for facial maintenance. And this is also, it looks like the packaging is Harry's Flamingo. I don't know if that's specifically for them, but it's also fascinating to see Harry's razors continue down this path of being much more, I guess, politically speaking, this is bizarrely enough, one of the things that became political. It's now, they're kind of leaning into it. So not only did that commercial drop, but you have, the founders and CEO of Harry's Razors, they don't believe in men and women anymore or moms or dads. So this is from a, this is a, again, only 38 seconds of uh, pain for your ears. But this is, this is them talking about parents unbalanced dynamic um and made the you know created a really sort of unbalanced dynamic um and made the co-parenting thing really hard to actually live in practice um and so you know that experience you know was was one that led us to this conclusion that hey we need not just a general parental leave policy but an equal parental leave policy um that treats birthing and non-birthing parents equally um so we've implemented that and give everybody four months regardless of whether you're the birthing parent or the non-birthing parent <laughs> This is something that bizarrely we saw a couple years ago when people thought it was pejorative to insinuate, insinuate that moms exist. 
which biologically speaking, you'll never change that. Now, they're saying birthing parents. So they're saying non-birthing parents, also known as men, and moms being birthing parents. So they're, they're changing their entire vernacular and completely confusing the heck out of a lot of folks. Also shows how much profit is in their product if you can have that long of a maternity leave of having four months. Um, and then last, um, we also as a company have always tried to sort of be socially minded and not just be about um, bottom line profits. You know, created a really... So socially minded, that's a very trendy thing to say. But also one of the things that concerns me, you know, small businesses, I don't think... I'm very pessimistic about any additional laws when it comes to parental leave, just because if you're a you know, five employee shop or 10 employee shop, you lose one employee for any amount of time, it can be detrimental to the business. But another topic in and of itself, this is fascinating from a cultural perspective because again, perhaps they are, technically this is a new target market. The growth rate is there in terms of the number of people transitioning. So the market is expanding, but they're also alienating a good part of the portion of the market. If Harry's razors, and again, when you look at who buys razors, I'd venture to say women usually would spend more on razors than men. I mean, to me, if it's sharp, I don't care. I'll use it. Or granted, these days, I'll just use the general buzz thingamajig. Yes, I have the greatest vernacular. And obviously, I know a lot about facial hair. But they also have a track record of alienating a lot of their customers. Famously, you had the Daily Wire, which is, again, the fastest growing media company, headquartered out of Nashville, Tennessee. Best known for Ben Shapiro. You also have Matt Walsh, who made the documentary, What is a Woman? You have... Brett Cooper, the comment section of Brett Cooper, they have Michael Knowles. They're a very fast-growing company. Harry's Razors used to sponsor them. But then Michael Knowles, um, one of the talk show hosts over there, he said that men are men and women are women. And two people on Twitter complained, saying that those are pejorative things to say, they're mean. And Harry's dropped the sponsorship. Now, that, that, just that, dropping the sponsorship caused the Daily Wire to go out and make their own razor company. So now they literally have, they, 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 put a video out with 20 million views in a couple days where the Daily Wire now has a mail, a monthly mail subscription product for razors. And of course they call it Jeremy's Razors after one of the co-founders, Jeremy Boring. But in doing so, Harry's Razors quite literally created their own competition. They, in terms of a economical razor with a subscription model, that's why Harry's Razors grows to, rose to fame. They were subsequently purchased by Global Government Unilever which is a hilariously hypocritical, no. The hypocrisy over at Unilever is quite hilarious and unpalatable. They're the company that owns Axe Body Spray, which lies to you. If you spray it on you, women don't come to you. I tried. Very disappointed at the drugstore. But in seriously, all seriousness, that's supposed to be, you know, hot women come to you. Then they also own Dove, which empowers body positivity, also known as ob obesity. So the same company that claims to empower women also uses them as marketing vessels to attract men. So... There's a lot of hypocrisy in and of itself in that statement with Unilever, but in terms of business, it's marked by Harry's Razors. They were the one, one of the, perhaps the most successful in terms of a subscription model for Razors. They were a pioneer of that segment. And in doing that one thing with Daily Wire, they created a huge competition, and now Daily Wire is growing with all those Razors subscribers. Doing this is only going to fuel the Daily Wire. Because if you think of Harry's Razors to begin with, maybe most of the customers were men. In the United States, about 50-50 break in the United States is conservative versus liberal. And as this becomes a political issue for many people, about half your sales might be gone because of this. I, and again, right, 
you can debate the long-term effect so socially in term and culturally from the growing movement and the percentage use base, uh, percentage identifying as tra the trans community, but how many years will it take for that growth rate to supplant or in to um, exceed the number of customers you lose? I, I can't help but think there has to be more of a cultural reason or a maybe they are really being socially minded and like they're saying, they don't care about the profits. If you're that size of a company, you could truly absorb a loss because they have all the different brands to carry them so one can offset the other. But it's fascinating to see, this is just driving fuel to the competition right now. And culturally, I don't know if there's gonna be a boycott like we saw with Bud Light where there's a significant boycott where the, compared to last year, they lost $390 million in sales at Bud Light. Will Harry's Razors have the same downfall in their sales figures? Which again, this is more difficult to boycott because if you're subscribing, you have to actually make an effort to go and stop subscribing. So traditionally, subscriptions are usually lucrative because the rate at which people stop is pretty low because it takes an effort to go out there and cancel your subscription, whether it be a gym membership, Netflix, what have you. Same thing with razors. Because it's more of a burden to quit this than just switch beers literally inches away and grab another pack of swill, is it because it's a higher burden uh, to boycott it? Will be the, the if any boycott will be less effective. Let me in the comments what you think. It'll be fascinating to see, does Boycott Harry's become something that's trending? What's it gonna do for their business long-term? Will they get those customers back or will the new customers increase at such a exponential rate that they'll actually make more profit doing this? That'd be fascinating to see. And from this perspective, perhaps this will be taught in university soon, right next to the Bud Light class. Perhaps it'll be business brilliance, but right now, Surely seems like a business blunder, though we have something more interesting for that show later today. Now, other interesting culture news, you have NASCAR. You have their driver suspended indefinitely for liking a me pejorative meme about George Floyd. Now, George Floyd, if you wind back the cultural clock a couple years, he almost become he became almost achieved sainthood for people, again, as this somehow became a political issue, people on the left. Now in terms of his background, many people will critique that he was a career criminal. He robbed a pregnant woman at gunpoint, multiple theft, more illicit use of substance that you can count. And the controversy came because the police officer put, um, famously put the knee on, it looked like his back, we were told it was his neck. And unfortunately, depending on your belief system, George Floyd did pass during that interaction. Now, the police argued that they did exactly according to the book, but there's a lot of controversy around it and quickly literal monuments were put up and erected to George Floyd. So it became a very politically charged issue, very emotionally charged. Everyone was up in arms about the situation. The whole nation tuned in. Now, it looks like the NASCAR driver by the name of Noah Gragson, it looks like he accidentally, oh no, I shouldn't say accidentally. I think he apologized, so it certainly does seem intentional, but he liked a meme and it looks like past Sunday, Noah did not drive past Sunday Cup World Series, uh, Sunday Cup Series in Michigan at International Speedway, and Legacy, Motor, Legacy Motors Club, the club at which he drives for, they indefinitely suspended him, saying, "quote We have made a decision to suspend Noah Gregson effective immediately regarding his actions. Do not represent the values of the team." And the cup. It looks like they went on to say that Jer Josh Berry will be driving number forty-two in this coming weekend's race in Michigan, and it looks like last week Tuesday. In terms of the, how this news report broke. It looks like it was a man by the name of Daniel McFadden. And this journalist, it looks like he's, um, a lot of people are saying he's politically charged. I Perhaps it was, I certainly agree that's part of it. 
but it looks like this person does report on NASCAR for a living, which I, I'm essentially here is actually a job in and of itself. But it looks like this person is a reporter for the Arkansas Democrat Gazette and the NASCAR writer at Front Stretch. And this journalist, who again went out of his way to actually see that this gentleman liked a meme in which I believe is a, is a pejorative thing where they had the crab from, I believe, his Little Mermaid. Instead of Under the Sea, which is the song from the Disney film originally, it said Under the Knee. And it had a picture of George Slace on it, which has a correlation to how he passed. So a lot of people were upset about it. I guess people who appreciate dark humor might have liked it. But it got a lot of backlash. Now, interestingly enough, it seems like there's the same or more backlash when it comes to the reporter finding out that Josh had went out and liked the Instagram post of that. Now, this person, the reporter was immediately ratioed. Now, in terms of the career, I think they got what they wanted. This reporter got over a million views when he tweeted saying, I did my due diligence to make sure it was, it was, to make sure it was, wow, it was poor grammar to say the least. He said, Noah Gregson made a mistake. I did my due diligence to make sure it was real. My, check out, you know, basically check out my front stretch column, which is the column he writes for. And he, ironically enough, he was, incredibly viscerally ratioed on the Twitter and he had to lock it down because so many people were saying pejorative things to him in and of itself saying, you know, how much time do you have on yourself? And are you proud of yourself for destroying this man's life? And in terms of Gregson, which he did apologize, which again, usually does nothing. I've yet to see someone who makes a social faux pas nowadays or a social error nowadays actually get their job back or actually improve the situation culturally. You saw this with the baseball player who previously boycotted a games or there was the LA Dodgers who invited the Nuns of Perpetual Indulgence was a, if you're religious, it's a pejorative drag show in which they make fun of Christ using the cross as an actual stripper pole, which is disgusting. You know, I find that disgusting and abhorrent. And this player said he didn't believe in them and he tried to boycott them. And within a day, he bent the knee and he, and he said, oh no, I'm going to take sensitivity training, also known as re-education from 1984. Do not drink, do not have a drinking game because again, as that book becomes more and more like real life, or sometimes life is worse than that, I can't help but notice I reverence that book more and more by George Orwell. But the baseball player didn't get his job back. So he apologized, and of course, it, it didn't help. Now, the NASCAR player Gregson said, quote, I am disappointed in myself for my lack of situation, lack of, lack of attention and actions on social media, unquote. Which... He goes on to say, understand the severity of the situation. I love and appreciate everyone. I try to treat everyone equally, no matter who you are, unquote. It, it almost felt like he had a gun to his head or a sniper was put a red dot right there. Just completely competuating, you know, saying everything he thinks he needs to say, but they never get redemption. Now, in terms of your private life, like if you make a mistake to a friend or a coworker, it is, of course, appropriate to apologize one-on-one -on -one because you usually, if they're if they believe in redemption, they'll give you another shot. They'll, you, you'll have a conversation. In terms of mass public interaction, I, I've never seen that really become constructive. Even if he does genuinely believe that he's sad and he's sorry for liking a meme, it, it's not like the, they're all going to come back and say, oh no, we forgive you. Now come join the, the driving team. His career is over. Which also, again, ironically, people say the United States is racist. It's a, this is one race that some people are saying is a racially charged meme in terms of George, the George Floyd incident. Now, legally, that was never actually on the roster. The arresting officer, I believe, was Asian American. But race was, that's what the media said. It was all about race, but that's actually not what was in the courtroom. But I digress. Just the hint of racism, you'll lose your 
your social, you'll be socially ostracized, you lose your job, you'll never work a day again in your life in the United States. Which, many would argue that's how far the United States has come, that we find racism so viscerally disgusting, you never work with someone around that. I mean, they would just be completely pushed out in every vector of society. But, I digress. From a cultural perspective, it'll be interesting to see, does he find a new team to race for? Does he go to another league? Or is he, is he perpetually unemployed? It'll be interesting to see, but right now he's just he's suspended indefinitely. So perhaps the he will catch up on the next lap or some maybe he'll turn to the left a little more. I don't know, this is probably a pun in there that has to do with NASCAR personally. I always thought NASCAR was kinda of like tennis. Probably pretty fun to do, driving really fast would be awesome, but to watch, I I don't know about that. We'll we'll have to see. But time shall tell. Other interesting culture news, you have the Barbie moving passing one billion dollars. Which, it hit a billion dollars in sales a mere 17 days after it was released. Now, I thought the bar could not get any lower in terms of what Americans will put in their bodies. Both, both in terms of food, but also entertainment, media. I, I should not be surprised that it hit a billion dollars. Now, in terms of the breakdown of the box office, and again, this is revenue, not profit. It was $459 million in North America and $572 million internationally. Of course, keep in mind, when you hear box office, that's not how much the studio makes. You split that with a movie theater, then you have cost of production, cost of advertising. But given these numbers, it sounds like it'll probably make a profit, even with their huge, um, the marketing department was brilliant. They had a huge advertising get campaign. And in terms of the numbers, it looks like it's the second blockbuster this year. You had Super Mario movies, which surpassed a billion dollars as well. And it looks like in terms of post-pandemic era, it's only one of a few companies who have hit a billion. You had Spider-Man No Way Home, which, yeah, I can't, without Tobey Maguire, I would never see it, but that's just me. You also had Top Gun Maverick, which Tom Cruise, he's pretty good at selling tickets. Jurassic World Dot Dominion? And Avatar The Way of Water. All of a sudden, I'm not so impressed with the intellect of people who are tuning into all these things because half those movies seem mediocre, rudimentary at best. Now, it looks like Barbie was actually hitting a milestone, you know, after just 17 days, it became the fastest Warner Brothers movie ever to hit that billion dollar club. And it's the eighth movie in the company's hundred years of history to hit a billion. So fiscally speaking, it turns out this probably will be fascinatingly, phenomenally good for the executives. Now, it also looks like it passed Harry Potter, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, which previously held the record for hitting a billion dollars, but they hit it in 19 days. Which also goes to show you how far society has fallen when Harry Potter actually had these rare, rare things that you might have to dust off the dictionary. They actually had things like morals, values. You could actually learn from the films and the books as opposed to the Barbie movie, which, again, is the most pejorative thing in terms of every man. And again, I've only seen... I, I'll, be, I'll admit, I don't hate myself enough to see the film or to, to hurt myself like that. It... If that would please the audience, maybe. If, if you really want to see my critique of the whole film, perhaps I'll force myself to watch it. That'd be a dark day and probably a much, uh, I would need a recovery perhaps. But it shows you how far, perhaps how people's intellect has fallen. The, the movie mentions the patriarchy six times. It's not kid appropriate. So if you're taking a kid there, you're morally and mentally vacuous. It's PG-13 for very good reasons. They include masturbation jokes. They, every other, every other line, is just talking about the patriarchy. It misrepresents Mattel. 
which is Mattel's, I don't know how dumb they are in terms of allowing this movie to be made in terms of the Mattel board directors, if you look at the real company, they have about a 50-50 split. I believe there's six to five in terms of women, men breakdown on the board directors. In the movie, it, they make it look like it's exclusively men. And of course they cast men in the worst shadow. Every man in the movie is a moron or a misogynistic a-hole, which, and there's no moral to the story. At the end of the movie, it, it, it was, the, the moral is men and women can't coexist. They're not supposed to partner together. I, it's, hard, it's hard to fathom how low of an IQ this movie just, you know, maybe it chips away at your IQ when you watch the movie, but it certainly does not help the viewer grow and develop. And it certainly doesn't make Mattel look good. So I, it's fascinating to see, perhaps it is just the nostalgia and the name and the branding, which the marketing department didn't mention a single thing I did. They don't mention the fact that it's so negative in terms of the men and women interactions. It doesn't say how bad it makes it look, man. It doesn't say, it doesn't even mention the word patriarchy in any of the marketing materials. So the company, Mattel knew if they let that leak, the, the movie would bomb epically, which I suspect whoever in the marketing department certainly deserves a raise because they bolstered this movie so well and they just highlighted all the things they wanted to, which of course is the purpose of marketing and advertising, but it didn't actually show the meat of the film. It didn't show the actual content. So unethical? Yeah, I would probably, I would say so, but it just is astonishing that it passed a billion dollars. But time shall tell to see. Do, do Americans start increasing the bar for like their tastes or movies? I would say the outlook is not so good. Nope. Going over to the political part of the podcast, you have Joe Rogan saying Carrie's like election appeared to have some fraud and the media had a huge meltdown. Now, in terms of historicals and the situation with Carrie Lake, she was running for governor over in Arizona and she campaigned very hard on the, on the idea that Trump had lost the presidential election because of election fraud. Trump also endorsed her, which ironically is not, it didn't turn out very well at all for the midterms. He chose a lot of losers. Oh, I would say both morally and intellect in terms of losers, but well, I wouldn't say that. He was he, he would certainly use that term. But he chose someone like Mehmet Oz, known as Dr. Oz, who didn't live in the state he was campaigning in. And also, historically, Dr. Oz, politically speaking, very much on the left side of the aisle. And a lot of people just speculate Trump thought, hey, he's on TV too, let's have him be in the politics. But yeah, that didn't resonate with the voters, obviously. And he lost to John Fetterman, who again had a stroke and could barely talk. But Republicans still lost to that. So... Again, this is someone who, politically speaking, she hooked her wagon up with Trump. She campaigned very heavily on the election fraud, which, again, historically speaking, every election has some fraud. The, the debate comes in, what's the percentage? Would it make a difference? And she did take it to court. So she lost the election. She took it to court. Specifically, she was concerned that Maricopa, Maricopa County, which is one of the most populous, dense counties in Arizona. Now, it looks like... According to the Supreme Court, again, the Maricopa County Supreme Court, Judge Peter A. Thompson, he said that Lake failed to prove her claim that Maricopa County did not verify signatures on mail ballots as required by law. Now, the state Supreme Court declined to hear nearly all of Lake's appeals, saying that there was no evidence to support her claims that more than 35,000 ballots were added to vote totals. So from legal, from a legal perspective, again, people still believe she won, people still believe she lost. Currently, with all the data we have now and all the data that she brought, it appears that she legitimately lost that race. Now, Joe Rogan, he has having a recent podcast interview, and 
people are freaking out. So this is with um, Valuetainment. I believe he's the owner as well as the main speaker, uh, Patrick Bate David. How much election fraud do you think is real? Here we go, Joe. You want to go to election fraud? Yeah, because I don't think it's zero. No, it's no not way. zero. I think we could all agree it's not zero. No way it's not zero. And we know that these voting machines can be fucked with. Yeah. And we know yeah. that there's some irregularities. Uh, all that, that Cary Lake stuff in mm -hmm. Arizona yeah. that they're trying to dismiss. It doesn't look like that's invalid. It looks like there's... And just a real quick pause there. When it comes to voting machines, partly because I work in IT, anything electronic can be hacked. And even if it's not a physical hack, like you're breaking in, you could have social engineering. You could actually have, in one case, you had a voting machine taking the votes and it put it on an SD card, like an old camera, you would have an SD card. And some of the SD, these SD cards didn't make it to the pile of cards to be counted. Now, again, the debate is, what is the percentage of fraud? Or in that case, where they have SD cards, it could either be malicious or not malicious for getting to add one to the pile. And really, the hard part is proving that enough, there's enough of that to swing the election. Real fraud there. It looks like there's some real shenanigans there. At the very Coincidentally, he nearly always helps one side of the political aisle, fascinatingly enough. At the very least, there was voting machines that weren't working properly, and it seems very suspicious that a lot of them were in Republican areas. There's a lot of shenanigans. There's a, and I think there's coordinated efforts to make sure that certain people get elected. I don't know how far they go, but I know it's not zero. How Which, again, I don't know. It's fascinating to see so many people freak out about this. It's not like he's saying anything too outlandish. I don't think anyone would confidently say it's zero. Even if you wind back the clock, people think, people think politics today is so ugly and disgusting, so visceral. We've had debates for as long as we can remember. And again, Republicans and Democrats have both sued and both complained when they lose. Even when you wind back the clock to when Al Gore lost, he was suing, I believe, you had the contingency or the, you had the controversy where you had the ballots in Florida and you wanted the recount, recount, recount. They weren't, both sides weren't happy when they didn't get what they want. So it's fascinating to see people blame one political aisle or say it's only one side. It's pretty standard that both sides are pretty upset and they cry when they don't win. The question is, can you produce enough evidence to show legitimately or in this case, or in, you know, in this case, not prove that you illegitimately lost. That's that's a real thing that again, kind of a new. It's kind of lost in the nuance, but I think most people would agree there's always some fraud. But again, what's that percentage? And of course, everyone's saying, "Oh no, now he's alt right." And again, people keep fighting Joe Rogan. People keep trying to claim him like he's a like a, a football player in the draft. Like, oh, he's Republican. Oh, he's a Democrat. Oh no, he's libertarian. Like, he has so many different issues that. Probably at the end of the day, he's like a lot of folks where they kind of just feel politically alienated and, you know, have that old saying where Democrats are running off a cliff and you know, Republicans are just slowly crawling off a cliff. That's like, personally, I wish we had a little bit more options when it comes to third party or libertarian party, but I digress. Both, uh, there's a lot of money and the odds are not always created equal when it comes to all the political ways that you need to go and get elected. But I always say, time shall tell. Other political news, you have Democrats putting forward legislation to tax AR-15 magazines and rifles at 1,000%. So you have a, if you have, do you want a semi-automatic rifle, just a semi-auto, 1,000% tax. Now, 
it looks like in terms of statistics, you know, numerically, how many people put this forward, this bill, it was a little bit more than two dozen House Democrats put forward legislation last Friday that would slap a assault weapon, quote unquote, and high capacity, high capacity magazines with a thousand percent excise tax. That would change the price of a rifle that usually goes for $500, which good AR-15, probably get a Smith & Wesson AR-15 for 500 bucks, depending on where you live. That, that would go from $500 to $5,000 which again, makes it prohibitively unaffordable for most Americans, as many people are struggling to go paycheck to paycheck. And they say that the, the bill is, is, they hope it'll curb gun violence across the United States, which at least they're saying the quiet power are out loud in terms of gun confiscation and gun being, just hurting the lower class. And think about this for a minute. You saw this with the National Firearms Act of 1934. They're saying, oh yeah, we're going to take, we're going to pass this law so that bad guys can't get the guns. Well, I don't know if this is a news flash, but bad guys don't follow the laws. Now, in 1934, they passed the NFA or the National Firearms Act that put a $200 tax cap on special classes of weapons, including short-belled rifles, short-belled shotguns, machine guns, and later you had AOW or any other weapon on also destructive devices known as DD. Now, $200 nowadays doesn't sound too bad. It, don't get me wrong, it's a lot of money. That's like a gallon of gas in Chicago. Kidding, it's like eight, maybe two gallons. But in terms of pricing, you know, back then, that was, you do the inflation calculator, $200 in 1934 was about $4,200 now. Now, thankfully, there was not a clause in there that adjusted for the cost of inflation. But it meant that if you want to purchase an item, to this day, if you want to buy a suppressor, which is legal in 42 states, you have to go out, you have to pay, of course, you have to pay a sales tax, which is disgusting in and of itself. But you have to pay a $200 tax to the U.S. Treasury Department, and it requires special paperwork, including a, um, a photo, ID, uh, extra photo passport taken of your face, fingerprints. It's a very prohibitive process, and really, the whole thing was done and just hurt people who can't afford it, which is fascinating to say that they keep arguing that they care about the lower class, but all these laws would do is disarm people who are of the lower class, people who have people who are buku bucks, people who make 100 grand, 200 grand a year, they can still spend five grand on a rifle. That's not a very high percentage of their income. If you're barely struggling to make by, if you're making $33,000 a year, which is the, about the average salary in the United States or um, income in the United States, there's no way you can, $5,000 compared to $33,000 a year salary? They, you can't afford to defend yourself. I find that repugnant and disgusting, disgusting beyond all belief. I can barely quantify. I, I should have an extra thesaurus on one of these monitors. Now, this is actually the second time they've introduced this bill. This one was introduced by Representative Don Bayer, a Democrat from Virginia, as well as 24 other House Democrats. Now, this 1,000% tax would be put on any semi-automatic assault weapon, which, if you like the previously previously introduced bills, defined a semi-automatic rifle, uh, rifle or pistol with a fixed magazine of 10 or more rounds and have various features, also known as black rifle scary. Because again, mechanically speaking, pretty much all rifles are semi-automatic. If you look at the most popular rifle in the United States by volume of units sold, it's the AR-15, partially because the patent's expired, or the design patent, so anyone can create a basic AR-15. is originally made by Eugene Stoner over at Armor Lake Company, ironically enough, over in California, decades ago, before the Vietnam War. I believe it was 1950, what was it, uh, 60? It's quite some time. And it's actually considered an antique if it's an old enough rifle. But I, I can't, more than 10 rounds? That's again, not the standard. The standard capacity magazine that I was designed with is a 30 round magazine. 
And again, we've had these laws before. The 1994 assault weapons ban, the U.S. government had three independent studies. It had no effect on crime. It had no major effect on mass shootings. Columbine is probably one of the most prolific, horrifying acts. That happened under that law. It didn't stop it. You also have specific states where these are in place as well. Which, again, a good use case is the city of Chicago. They've had many of these restrictive laws, and yet nothing's changed in decades. Many would say it was a cultural issue. Another topic for another time, but it looks like, yeah, 10 or more rounds if you're a civilian. Government, there's no restrictions, of course, even though the most horrific acts in history have all come from governments. But I moderately digress. Let's dive back in. And in terms, can you have a gun that used to cost $2,000, now going for $20,000? And Bayer, the same gentleman, argued last year that this would, quote, curb the epidemic of gun violence. Which, again, it wouldn't. You could, we've gotten to the point where you could print a magazine. So if you have a 3D printer, it's a glorified rectangular box with a spring in it. So anyone with a 3D printer could make one on their own. If you're really desperate, I suppose you can make one out of wood or just take sheet metal and bend it and have a spring in there. It's pretty rudimentary technology in terms of a magazine. We've had the design for well over a hundred years. And again, there's this is saying, oh yeah, it's still legal, but only if you're rich. So not only would it not solve the gun violence, it just actively hurt people of lower socioeconomical income. A lot of people give crap to High Point being a, a cheap pistol, but at the end of the day, it's one of the most reliable ways to defend your family. It's a sub $200 uh, nine millimeter pistol. That's perhaps the most popular caliber, but Again, these laws would just hurt the lower class. And call me old-fashioned, but I think all men are created equal. Everyone should have the opportunity to defend themselves and their family. Now, in terms of the odds of this getting passed, I would say, hopefully, outlook not so good. And granted, the Supreme Court, finally, for the first time in decades, has more people who believe in the Constitution who do not. So, and the, actually, the Supreme Court, Supreme Court has already ruled previously that you cannot ban guns in common use. A rifle, which comprises more than 50% of all rifle sales, I would certainly argue from a legal perspective, is well in common use. So from a legal perspective, I don't know how much grounds it has to stand on. Now, that being said, it's concerning because, of course, every law that is passed by the United States government is backed by a gun held by the United States government. So I just tell people, you should always take all your laws seriously because, remember, they enforce them. And when it comes to certain gun laws, it could sometimes be horrific and deadly for people they're enforced against. So depending on where you live, write, write, write your political representatives appropriately and make sure you're active in this development. Now, going on to the business blunder of the day, you have Yellow Trucking confirming their bankruptcy. Now, it looks like this is chapter 11 bankruptcy and unfortunately they're gonna be biting the dust. They're a 99 year old trucking company headquartered out of Nashville, Tennessee. and. I also want to take a moment to appreciate everyone taking the time to comment. Now, it was really cool to see. I had this business blunder a couple weeks ago saying they're on the brink of bankruptcy and they're starting to liquidate some assets. And a couple of the people in the comments hinted that they were actual truck, they were truckers and they had experience in the industry. And they enlightened me about some of the issues that came from the management perspective of the business, hinting that it wasn't just because it was a prohibitively costly to have a unionized employee base. And I always appreciate the more insight. If you have some more data, you can always reach me at the topping show at gmail.com. I'll even, if you want me, I'll give you a shout out. More information, the better, as we learn about all these fascinating business, political, and cultural cases. Now, it looks like, in terms of the fiscals of why they're having to declare bankruptcy, the company had been having a 
astronomical amount of debt loaded up. It looks like they had more than $1 billion in debt to come to mature next year. And the labor issues were also led to the costly stalemate with the Teamsters Union. This is according to the Wall Street Journal. The company also had large contracts with Home Depot, Walmart, and it looks like they even had some federal defense contracts as well. So it wasn't an issue of not having enough customers, I would think. Perhaps they decreased the amount of business that are transacting with them or their costs just kept ballooning. And there are a lot of cost issues, not just labor, but you also have the cost of diesel. And the United States is not very, right now, it's fossil fuels ridiculously, they are becoming a political issue. But the United States, the cost of fossil fuels are just growing up exponentially as we continue to refuse to exploit the natural resources that we do have on hand in lieu of bringing them from, actually buying them from countries who hate us like Venezuela, which again is a communist, disgusting, oppressive government, but we would rather support them than drill our own land. A fascinating topic for another time, perhaps. So interesting to see, they also received one of the largest federal bailouts during the 2020 pandemic and rendering the government one of the, one of the yellow, uh, yellow's largest creditors. So unfortunately, it seems they're pretty, pretty loaded up on the debt and maybe they just could not get enough business to pay off the principal or the interest on it. And they have some of these debt that is actually coming up to mature, meaning they would have to pay them pretty quick. But it's unfortunate to see what was nearly a hundred year old United States based company go out of business. And hopefully as the demand for trucking increases, as we purchase more products in the United States and more products are moving around, hopefully all the employees who were at Yellow are able to find jobs at other trucking companies. So there's not many, too many jobs lost overall. And I wish hopefully they, they have the best of luck finding those new roles. But I would say time shall tell. Maybe someone will swoop in by the assets of the company and hopefully get them new jobs, but we shall see. Thank you, everyone, for taking the time to tune in today. Also, we're trying to get to 3,000 subscribers by the end of August, so I greatly appreciate you taking the time to click that subscribe button. Also, taking the time to like and comment, also greatly appreciate. It really helps the channel grow and develop as we try to make the content and production better and better. Also, don't forget to tell your family, tell your coworkers, heck, tell your friends, heck, even tell your enemies, tell anyone and everyone to stay safe and fight the good fight.